I'm excited, friends, because we are in part two of a very exciting subject. How many of you were with us last night online? All right, a few hands, amen, amen. Thank you guys for joining us. I just wanna say, as we start tonight, if you missed last night's presentation, you can find it on the YouTube page. Go ahead and go back and watch it to review. But there's a lot of information, and I wanna encourage you, if you missed it, to go back and see it. Tonight, the time of the end, part two. Get ready to buckle your seatbelts because tonight is an exciting topic. But first, friends, what do we need to do before we open the Word of God? We need to pray, so let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for being with us tonight. Thank you for bringing us back. But I thank you for each one that has come, and thank you for everyone that is watching us online. And as we open your Word, I pray that you would send us your Holy Spirit. Help us to understand what we read tonight. Please open the eyes of our hearts so that we will see Bible prophecy in a, a more clear light than we've ever seen it before. I thank you, Father, for hearing and answering this prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, tonight, the time of the end, part two. All right, I have a question for you as we, as we begin. How many of you are good at math? Okay, if I was in your shoes, I would not be putting my hand up, okay? I understand if you didn't put your hand up. How many of you enjoyed math class in school? Okay, some of you are saying, all right, let me tell you right now, I'm gonna be honest with you, I did not like math, okay? <laughs> I didn't like math. Well, it's not that I didn't like math, but I felt pressured about math, and I felt like I was a, a little slow. I, did I tell you a nickname that someone had, well, my family had for me was actually slow-mo. All right, so, <laughs> so um, when it came to math, it was, I was just always very slow. Now there was one problem. There was a teacher that I had that his method was he would have the class, he would put a, a, a problem up on the screen, and I know some of you are looking at the screen and your hearts are starting to beat because you're thinking I'm gonna do a twist. And I might be, I might be, but the teacher would put his math problem on the screen and he would ask us, to solve the math problem, solve the, solve the algebra problem, and he said, okay, the first one that gets it right, stand up. And I remember just, I have vivid memories of just furiously trying to figure out and looking, also looking and seeing who was standing first, you know, and then, and then my friend stands up and then another friend, and then I'd say, and I'd say, he's not smarter than me, how's he standing up? And then I'd finally stand up. But boy, those were not the best memories, let me tell you, all right? <laughs> I will, I promise tonight I'm not gonna make you stand up. How's that? Okay, no standing up. But we are gonna do a little bit of math tonight because there is actually math in prophecy because we have numbers, right? So, do you guys remember number lines? Anybody remember number lines? Okay, this young man here is saying yes. All right, good. And you may have told your teacher you would never use them in real life. Well, tonight you're gonna to use it in real life. <laughs> All right, so let's do a quick math problem. What is negative two plus three? One, all right, the answer is one. Pretty easy problem, you guys get an A plus. Now, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I almost feel nervous even teaching math from the screen, okay? Let's pretend that this isn't a number line, but it's a date line. And all the numbers to the left of the gold line are the years BC, that is before Christ, and all the numbers to the right of the gold line are the years AD, right after Christ, or ante dominum, year of our Lord. 
So BC, AD, all right? Are you with me so far? Okay, good. Now let's do the same problem, but this time we're calculating years instead of numbers. So if we begin with 2 BC and we move three years into the future, where do we land? How many of you think 1 AD? How many of you think 2 AD? <laughs> All right, let's see. Now here's the thing. One is a pretty good answer. There's only one problem. With years, you have to calculate a little bit differently. The answer is actually 2 AD because there was no year zero. Does that make sense? So the year 1 BC was immediately followed by the year 1 AD. So you move three years down the line, skipping zero because it doesn't exist, and you land where? 2 AD. Is that clear, everyone? All right, so there you go. So the answer is two. Now if it doesn't, all you have to remember is this. When you cross the BC AD line, you just add one to the total. How much do you add? Does that make sense? All right, I'm seeing most of you saying yes, there's a few. Don't worry, I understand. We'll get there, we're gonna review it again. All right, one more principle before we get started tonight. An important principle in Bible prophecy. As we've talked about, in biblical prophecy, language is symbolic, right? We've looked at animals representing kingdoms, and in the, in the statue we see different metals representing different kingdoms. Well, in Bible prophecy, another symbol is that a day often represents an entire year. A day represents an entire year. Now this is a fairly frequent part of Bible prophecy. You'll find it all over the place. For example, when the people of Judah sinned for 40 years, God told the prophet Ezekiel to, as an illustration of how long they'd been sinning, he said, lay on your side for 40 days to illustrate. And so God says in Ezekiel 4, verse 6, I have laid on you, what? A day for each year. Now this is just one example. There's other examples in the Bible where God has done this. So in Bible prophecy, what does a day usually represent, friends? A year. All right. So with those two principles, number one, when you cross B.C., A.D., you add one because there's no year zero, and because in Bible prophecy, principle number two, a day usually represents a year. Remember those two as we go through the study tonight. Good? Are you guys good? Okay, and by the way, you all get an A-plus for your math skills tonight. I'm very impressed. Good job. If I could give all of you a prize, I would. All right, so let's pick up where we left off last night, but we're going to first do a quick review of what we studied. Now remember, we studied Daniel chapter 8, and we discovered that it's a parallel prophecy to Daniel chapter 2. So again, in the Bible, we see repetition and expansion. God gives a, a prophecy in Daniel 2. In Daniel 8, he covers the same time period, pretty much, with different symbols. So here we go. Remember, in Daniel 2, the head of gold was... Babylon, all right? The chest and arms represented Medo-Persia. The belly and thighs, Greece, right? The iron legs, Rome, exactly. And the feet of iron and clay mixed, they represented divided Rome, right? The Western Roman Empire. That's all review. Now, last night, we turned to Daniel 8. And remember, we had most of the same kingdoms, but different symbols. 
First, there was the ram with uneven horns, remember? And that represented the Medes and the Persians. And remember, we know this for sure because Gabriel pointed it out very plainly, saying that this represented Medo-Persia. Then that goat with that one big horn, what did that goat represent? Greece, right? And the horn was who? Alexander the Great, the first king. And then the horn broke off, and what came up after that horn? Four kings, or four generals, that replaced Alexander the Great. And then we saw that little horn, and it was a pretty big subject. We skimmed over it very quickly last night, but that little horn also represented Rome, both in the united phase and the divided Western Europe phase. So it basically covers the same ground that we see in Daniel chapter 2. Is that clear? Is that clear? Okay. So we had a ram, a goat, and a little horn. And there was one more part, though. One more part last night that we talked about. Does anybody remember what it was? If you were watching, it was the 2300 days. Remember, Daniel 8, verse 14, And he said to me, For 2300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Now, this part of the prophecy was completely different. There were no animals, no horns. There was no conquest. It's just a prediction of time. Just a prediction of time. And this was the only part of the prophecy where Gabriel really didn't explain it to Daniel. For everything else, Gabriel gave a lot of details. He, the ram is Persia. The goat is Greece. The little horn is the king who understands sinister schemes, Rome. These three parts have lots of explanation. But the 2300 days, he simply says it's true, but he doesn't go into detail about what it's representing. Daniel, remember, gets so upset, he tries to understand it, but he actually gets sick. He knows it's important, but he can't understand it. So here's a question, guys. Does that mean that you and I can't understand it either? What do you think? Thankfully, the answer is no, praise God, right? You and I discovered some important clues last night. Daniel 8, 17. We discovered that the vision refers to when? To the time of the end. And in Daniel 8, 19, we discovered that the 2300 days refer to an appointed time at the end. And then we discovered that Paul describes a last day event that is appointed. Acts chapter 17, verse 31, he has appointed a day on which, what? He will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. So that event was the judgment. So then we looked at the prophecy itself and saw that in 2300 days, what does it say, friends? The sanctuary shall be cleansed. So we went to the rest of the Bible looking for more information on what this cleansing of the sanctuary means. So we have three big clues to help us understand the 2300-day prophecy. Number one, clue number one, it's a prophecy about the time of the end. Clue number two, it's a prophecy about a time that's appointed. And clue number three, it has something to do with the cleansing of the sanctuary, the sanctuary cleansed. Very good. So when you look at all the evidence, the theme of the judgment keeps coming up. And it's clear that God is pointing us to the Old Testament sanctuary. 
which proves to be one of the most important keys to understanding the book of Revelation. Now, um, just to say, too, there is no question that here in Daniel 8, it's sanctuary language. Even the animals, the ram and the goat, those were animals that were used in the sanctuary service. So let's take a quick review of the sanctuary, shall we? I know we did this last night, but I want to take you on a quick tour of the old Israelite sanctuary so we can see the picture of how it illustrated the gospel. Remember we said that the sanctuary itself, the entire thing, was a prophecy. God gave them explicit instructions on what to build and how it was to be arranged because everything in the sanctuary represented who? It represented Jesus. That's exactly right. So let's go quickly on a tour of the sanctuary, really quick again. When you came in, what was the first thing you saw there? It was the altar of burnt offering. And you see, friends, when, when, a, when a sinner would come in, if they had, a, they had sinned, they would bring that little lamb. And they would, they would take the lamb to the priest, and the priest would hold the lamb, and there they would confess on the head of that lamb. They would confess their sin. And symbolically, that sin was transferred to that little lamb, symbolically. And they would, they would actually have to slit the throat of that lamb and watch the lifeblood drain out of that little poor, innocent lamb. Then the priest would take the lamb and would burn it on the altar of burnt offering. And as the person saw that, it impressed their heart and their mind on the cost of sin, right? Now, who did that lamb represent? It represented Jesus, who was the lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world, right? That was all an illustration of what Jesus would do for us. So, so then, moving past that, the next piece of furniture was the laver. It was a big wash basin, and this is where the priests would go to cleanse themselves before they went into the tabernacle, into the presence of God. And of course, this represents the cleansing that you and I receive from Jesus before we can step into the presence of God. And praise God, we can all be cleansed. Amen? Because if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. And so then we go into the holy place. Now remember, the tabernacle or the building part was divided into two parts. The holy place and the most holy place. And as you go into the holy place, can you imagine? It was covered in gold. Covered in gold. But it was dark, but there was one light. It was that seven-branch candlestick. And it was, it was beautiful. And that candlestick represented who? Jesus, who is the light of the world. On the right-hand side of the holy place was the table of showbread, where there were 12 loaves, and those loaves represented also Jesus, who said, I am the bread of life. Amen? And then as you went forward in the holy place, right in front of that beautiful curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place, there was the altar of incense. And there the priest burned a sweet-smelling uh, incense that ascended up the curtain and before the presence of God. And that represented the prayers of God's people ascending before him. As you entered into that beautiful curtain, into the most holy place, you approached the most sacred part of the entire camp of Israel, the most sacred spot on earth. That was the Ark of the Covenant where the very presence of God dwelt between those covering cherubs. 
That presence was called the Shekinah glory. And there, Christ met with his people. Just over the mercy seat, they called it. Now, how do we know this is where God met with his people? Exodus 25 tells us. All right. Exodus 25 tells us that I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony. So the Ark of the Covenant is also called the Ark of the Testimony, and it represented God's throne in heaven. Remember last night we also said that the sanctuary is one of the most important keys in understanding Revelation. And if you read the Revelation, you will see sanctuary language all throughout the book. All throughout the book. Here's just a couple quick examples of what you will see in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 11... In verse 19, the Bible says, Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and what? The ark of his covenant was seen where? In his temple. Now where is this, friends? This is in heaven. So the Bible is describing the sanctuary in heaven. Here's another verse, Revelation chapter 1, verse 13. John sees himself dressed like a high priest. John sees Jesus, rather, dressed like a high priest, and standing where? And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. That is Jesus. So these seven lampstands are reminiscent of sanctuary language, right? In Revelation 8, the Bible says, Revelation 8, verse 3, Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon what? The golden altar which was before the throne. Now what do you think this represented? What, I'm not represented, but what does this refer to? Remember that altar of incense that burned that sweet-smelling aroma representing the prayers of God's people ascending before the throne. So the earthly sanctuary, the one that humans built, was a pattern of what? The real sanctuary in heaven. Now this is a very, this is foundational. This is an important key point to understanding our study tonight. You'll see as we go along why it's so important. And remember, we saw last night from the book of Hebrews that this was the case. So now, remember, we also studied last night not only the furniture, but quickly we looked at the seven festivals that happened every year in the Jewish calendar. The seven festivals. Do you guys remember the seven feasts that we talked about last night? All right. So the whole year was actually a prophecy of the ministry of Jesus. Now, I'll just show you very quickly a list of these seven, just as a reminder. So you had the Passover. The Passover, of course, was a reminder to the Jews of what event? Passover, right? Amen. And what happened on that event? Remember, the the angel of death was going to come and kill the firstborn of Egypt. But if the Israelites would dip in lamb's blood and they would put some of that blood over the doorpost, the angel of death would pass over them and they would be spared. That blood represented who? It represented Christ. And so if they had Christ, if they had the protecting mercy of God, that judgment would not happen. That was Passover. So then after Passover, or as 
as a part of the Passover feast, another feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread took place. And this is where they removed all the leaven from their house. Because leaven represented what? Sin, all right? So it symbolized that God wants to remove sin from his people. And then on the third day of the Passover week, the priest would wave a sheaf of grain. An act of faith. This was one of the first ones harvested from that year's harvest. And this pointed to the third day when Jesus would rise from the grave, becoming the first fruits of them that slept. Amen. It was a guarantee that you and I will also raise from the dead and become part of that great harvest when Jesus comes again. Praise the Lord. Amen. And then you had the Pentecost feast. And this one, of course, took place 50 days after the Passover. And this pointed to the day when Jesus would launch his New Testament church. And amazingly, Pentecost happened on the very day of Pentecost. And this is, these are the first four feasts. Then you had a long break over the summer. And then you had fall. And you had three more feasts. First, the Feast of Trumpets, which was a solemn warning that you had ten more days to make things right with God. Because the next feast was the Day of Atonement. The solemn day of judgment. And if you don't make things right by then, you are cast out of the camp of Israel forever. Remember, we said atonement, that word, at one meant. Does that make sense? Why? Because sin separates us from God. You follow me? Sin separates us from God. So in other words, if we're not connected with God, what happens? Wages of sin is what? Is death. So we need to be reconciled to God to live. So the Day of Atonement was simply an illustration of the fact that if we don't have the atoning blood of Christ to reconnect us to the Father, we will die. And so then, the final feast of the Jewish calendar was the Feast of Tabernacles. And when the people of Israel would go camping in these, these little booths made of branches, it was a celebration of the fact that their time in the wilderness was over and they were now in the promised land. But even more than that, they were celebrating the fact that God would keep His promise to one day bring them home to the heavenly promised land when Jesus comes again and God will literally tabernacle with His people. What do you say? Isn't that amazing? The, the feasts, all of these, pointed forward to the work of Jesus Christ, the entire plan of salvation. But remember last night, we looked specifically at that one feast, the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. Now remember, ten days before that Day of Atonement, they would blow the trumpet. It was a warning. You got ten days to make things right with God. Thank you so much, my brother. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Harold. And the Bible says that everybody was supposed to search their hearts during that time. Was there any sin that was keeping them from God? So everything had to be right. Everything had to be right. And during that Day of Atonement, there was a special ritual that was done to cleanse the temple. It was a ceremony you find in Leviticus chapter 16. So let's read through this verse together. Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 33. Then he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tabernacle of meeting. 
Now question, why would the sanctuary need atonement? Isn't it people that need atonement, not buildings? Here's the thing, all year long, the sins of Israel symbolically, remember we talked about how the person would confess their sin on that lamb. Then the lamb was sacrificed and that was burned on that altar. The priest would take some of that blood and bring it into the tabernacle. That was all a symbol of God taking the sins of his people, transferring them to the sanctuary. But once a year, that sin had to be cleansed from the sanctuary. You see, it was symbolic of Jesus taking our sins upon himself. That, that, that sin was now in the sanctuary, in the presence of God, but one year, that sin had to be cleansed. It was the most solemn day of the year. And, a, and so what happened was they had a goat, and that goat was chosen and sacrificed, and that blood was carried into the sanctuary all the way in the one time of the year when they could go into the most holy place, there before the Ark of the Covenant. And the only one who could go in was the high priest. And this priest was also a symbol of Jesus. And he goes alone into the most holy place that one time a year, and he carries the blood of that goat that represented Christ, and he sprinkles it on the lid of the mercy seat. And this was a very solemn occasion. If everything wasn't right, if the priest hadn't confessed his sins before God, he could lose his life right there. Now the Day of Atonement is also mentioned in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 7. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins. So the high priest went into the second compartment, the most holy place, by himself. How often, friends? Once a year. And he offered the blood in the presence of God. So on this day of judgment, he did this year after year after year after year until one day something happened. Something amazing happened. It wasn't the Day of Atonement. It was during the Passover feast and they were in that temple in Jerusalem and that veil that separated the most holy from the holy was ripped in two from top to bottom. Do you know how thick there's different estimates. It was several inches thick, that veil, ripped in two from top to bottom. When did that happen, friends? When Jesus died on the cross, an unseen hand ripped that curtain because it was a symbol of the fact that the Lamb of God, the true sacrifice, had died to take away the sins of the world. No longer would that, that earthly sanctuary be needed because the true Lamb had given His life to save you and me. All of these rituals were no longer needed. The feasts were no longer needed because it was all fulfilled in who? In Jesus, right? In Jesus. So when Jesus died, we didn't need the earthly sanctuary anymore. We no longer needed the symbol. Now the Lamb of God is our high priest and He then ascends where? To heaven, to the heavenly sanctuary where God Himself dwells. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 24. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, 
but into where? Heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God. For who? For us. For us. You see, we have the real Lamb and the real sanctuary in heaven. What do you say? Amen? Isn't that beautiful? Now let's get back to the prophecy because this is where it all is going to come together. Daniel 8.14 I, and he said unto me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Now let me ask you a question. When was the sanctuary cleansed? According to what we just studied. The Day of Atonement, right? That was the cleansing of the sanctuary in the annual Jewish cycle. So what is Daniel trying to tell us? Keep that question in your mind. This is absolutely amazing. Gabriel didn't explain this to Daniel in chapter 8, but in Daniel chapter 9, he comes back. And this is why you have to read all of Bible prophecy to understand what it means. So in Daniel 9, we're going to go to Daniel 9 now, it opens with Daniel praying for understanding. He's praying for God to help him understand. And while he's praying, he suddenly gets a visitor. The angel Gabriel the same angel who had been with him at the beginning of the story now comes to him again. Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, began, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. In other words, and he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. In other words, Gabriel is saying, Daniel, I know you didn't get it the first time, so I'm going to explain it now. And for the rest of this chapter, Gabriel explains it by giving Daniel something known as the 70-week prophecy. Some of you are like, 70-week prophecy? What is that? I'm going to explain it right now. Some of you are like, what is that? Get ready. This is amazing, you guys, okay? Now, before we go into this, let's review the two math principles that we looked at at the beginning, okay? Remember, when we cross the BCAD line, what happens? We add one. Remember that? Okay, you guys are A students. Amen. And remember, in Bible prophecy, one day represents what? A year. Okay, good. You guys are great. Amen. Great students. Give yourselves a pat on the back. All right, as, as we go forward, you've got to remember those two principles. So how many days are there in a week, friends? Seven days, okay? So a week in Bible prophecy is actually how many years in Bible prophecy? Does that make sense? Is that clear? Okay. Now we're going to move carefully and methodically because we're going to cover a lot of material. All right. And we're going to let the Bible speak for itself because the 70-week prophecy is something a lot of people talk about but most people take it out of context. So let's get started. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. Now let me ask you a question. Who are Daniel's people? They're the Jews, right? And which city would be Daniel's city? Jerusalem. So what Gabriel is saying here is very important. Daniel, 70 weeks are determined for your people. Which... Who is he talking about? For the Jewish people, right? Does that make sense? The original word here actually means to set aside or to cut off from something else. When it says determined, it means to cut off from something else. So what he's actually saying here 
is that these 70 weeks are being cut off from the prophecy of Daniel chapter 8, the vision from the beginning that Daniel was trying to understand. Daniel, 70 weeks are cut out of the prophecy for your people and for your city. So let me ask you again, how many days in a week? All right, and a day represents what? So 70 weeks equals how many days? 490, right? All right, you guys are good, amen, good math. So 490 days is how many years in Bible prophecy? 490, right? 490 days is 490 years because a day equals a year. So this is very important. Daniel 9 does not stand alone. Gabriel is taking 70 weeks or 490 years out of the prophecy of Daniel chapter 8. Is everybody clear on that? Let's put it on a chart. Some of you are like, I'm not sure if I'm clear. Here we go. What we know so far, there are 2,300 days in that prophecy in Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14, right? For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. And then there are 490 days, 70 weeks equals 490 days, 490 days in Daniel chapter 9. Is that clear, everyone? Okay, you got it? All right. So those first 490 days are cut out of that longer prophecy and they're set aside for Daniel's people, that is the Jews and the city of Jerusalem. So what we don't know is when the prophecy starts. But Dan Gabriel is about to explain that too. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 25. Gabriel says to Daniel, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. All right, so I want you to do a little math. 62, okay, seven weeks, right? And 62 weeks equals 69 weeks. Is that right? Or am I wrong? Is that right? That's right. Okay, thank you. So that's seven weeks plus 62 weeks, that equals 69 weeks. And when does that begin? It begins when the decree to restore Jerusalem goes out. All right? All right, so that's something we know for sure. Under the Persians, there were several decrees that allowed the Jews to return to the promised land. But there was only one decree where it all took effect. And it happened in 457 B.C. under a king by the name of Artaxerxes. Not only did he let them go back, but he actually financed their mission and he gave them what they needed to rebuild. You can read about it in Ezra chapter 7. So 457 B.C., that's a hard date in history, was when the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem came. So that's, here's what we know. Gabriel said, if our starting point is 457 B.C., Gabriel said it would be 69 weeks until Messiah the Prince, which is 483 years. Remember, a day for a year. And of course, what happens when you cross the B.C. 80 line? You add one. So that leads you to what year, friends? 
A.D. 27. You can see it there on the screen. So 27 A.D. happens to be the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. Does anybody know what happened in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar? Amazing, guys. What happened in the 15th, years of Tiber- the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar is that Jesus was baptized. According to Luke chapter 3, that's what happened in that year. And on that occasion, the heavens opened and God announced the beginning of Christ's ministry. This is my beloved Son, He said, in whom I am well pleased. Have you ever wondered why Jesus spent so many years in obscurity? It's because according to Daniel chapter 9, it wasn't yet time to begin his earthly ministry. So friends, we have 69 weeks until Messiah makes his public appearance, but the whole prophecy is 70 weeks, right? So that takes us all the way to 34 AD. Are you guys with me? Amen. All right. I, some, of you, some of you saying yes, some of you looking. It's okay. This takes, you have to review this. I'm just give, some of you, that if you've never heard this before, it's the first time, but as you keep hearing it, it'll be clear. Does anybody know what happened in that year, a, a 34 AD? Stephen, you remember in the Bible, Stephen was stoned. Stephen was stoned. Stephen the deacon made one last appeal to the nation of Israel. One last appeal to accept the Messiah. He reviews the whole history of Israel. You can see this in the book of Acts. And they reject it. And then what happens? They stone him to death in 34 AD. And that was the beginning of a great persecution spearheaded by none other than Saul of Tarsus who would later become the Apostle Paul. And the Bible says that persecution scattered the believers, which means that the gospel is carried to the entire world, even to the Gentiles. And so in 34 AD, the 70 weeks are over. The special period of time set aside for Daniel's people is finished. And the gospel then goes where? It goes to the world. It goes to all the Gentiles. And according to the Bible, that now means that everyone can be an Israelite. What do you say? You can be an Israelite. You say, really? Yeah, look at what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are what? Abraham's seed. And heirs according to the promise. Are you heirs according to the promise tonight? Amen. All of us are. You and I are descendants, spiritual descendants of Abraham even if we don't have one drop of Jewish blood. Listen to else what Paul says. He says in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one what? Inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart. I want to be clear. The people of Israel will always have a special place in God's heart. Amen? But the sharp distinction between Jew and Gentile is gone. And honestly, it was always supposed to disappear. The Bible teaches that Israel was to be a light to the Gentiles. They were supposed to bring the Gentiles into the covenant family. And now under the New Testament, because of Jesus, that's exactly what happens. You and I have been grafted in to the nation of Israel. Romans 10, verse 12, For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all 
is rich unto all that call upon Him. Amen? There is no more distinction. All of us can be spiritual children of Israel. What do you say? So the time was up. There were 70 weeks or 490 years for Daniel's people. Stephen is put to death and the Gospel goes to the rest of the world. And that happened when? 34 AD. Now, I don't, Renika, I think we've got some excellent material for our quiz questions now coming up, right? Amen? <laughs> so I hope you guys are ready because there are going to be some quiz questions coming up on these dates. Some of you are like, oh, Pastor Kyle, why did you have to say that? <laughs> it's all right. I understand. It takes a little review, but I hope you're seeing a picture, a beautiful picture of Bible. Guys, this was predicted hundreds of years before it happened. Jesus came right on time. Amen? Isn't that powerful? I mean, I don't, I can, I'm getting pumped up about this, just going over it again. Bible prophecy is amazing. It really is. It helps us understand that the Bible is a trustworthy book. All right. It's, in, it's incredible, guys. So, again, just as a review, we've got the decree of Artaxerxes in 457 B.C. We've got the baptism of Jesus, the appearance of the Messiah at 27 A.D., right on schedule. And the close of the time set aside for Daniel's people is 34 A.D. And that would be amazing enough, but there's still more. At some point after the 62 weeks, which are part of the 69 weeks, the Bible says Messiah shall be what? Cut off. After the 62 weeks, Daniel 9.26, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, at some point after these 62 weeks, Messiah would be cut off for other people. When was Messiah cut off? What was that? What does that represent? What, what, what event would be the Messiah being cut off? The cross, right? The cross. It did happen. And so, Gabriel says that someone would come and destroy the temple again. And of course, that happened too in AD 70 when a Roman general, as we'd studied, named Titus, destroyed Jerusalem. So in this prophecy, you have the death of Christ and the sack of Jerusalem all mentioned here. So let's put it together. At some point after his baptism, Jesus dies on the cross. And we know that happens before the stoning of Stephen. So we'll put it here, right? After the 69 weeks. Now that is very specific, but it gets even more specific. Let me ask you, how much time elapses between 27 A.D. and 34 A.D.? How much time is that? That's seven years. So it's one week, right? The 70th week. Now listen to this. Daniel 9, verse 27. It says, Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But here's the key. In the middle of the week. When, friends? In the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to what? To sacrifice an offering. Now let me ask you, who put an end to the sacrificial system? When that, when that veil was torn in two from top to bottom, what, ha what happened when that happened? Jesus died on the cross, right? They no longer needed the sacrifices because the real Lamb of God had come and given His life on the cross. This is clearly a prophecy about Jesus. Now, if you read some modern books, they try to say that this prophecy is about the Antichrist, and they try to, 
they, they change things around, but it's obvious that this is about the Messiah and when He is cut off for His people. This is a prophecy about Jesus, not the Antichrist. And it's only in the past 150 years or so, friends, that they have tried to make this about something other than Jesus. But this is clearly about the Messiah. And it says that in the middle of the week, Messiah brings an end to sacrifice and offering, which is exactly what Jesus did. So let's put this on the chart to put it all together. The middle of the week, between 27 and 31, when would that be? 31 A.D., the spring of 31 A.D., which is exactly when Jesus died on the cross of Calvary. He brings sacrifices to an end, and the veil is torn in two. And it happened, friends, right on time. Exactly, Jesus is exactly who He claimed to be. You see, more than 500 years in advance, Daniel saw it all. Isn't that incredible? He even gave us the dates. Friends, there is no question the Bible is not a human document. Do you see that tonight? Yes or no? Amen. The Bible is a divinely inspired document. Now, so, again, in recent years, some people have taken this 70th week and they've removed it from the prophecy and they've said it talks about something that happens at the end of time. They say it represents seven final years of earth's history, even though there's nothing in the text to suggest that. Does that make sense to you, friends? Does the 70th week come after the 69th week? Or does it come at some random moment in the future? Just think about it logically. Let's say I told you it was 70 miles to my house, so you allowed yourself an hour to get there, but after a few hours, you still haven't found the right exit on the freeway, and so you give me a call. And you, and, and you say, I thought it was 70 miles, and then I tell you, I say, well, it is, but I forgot to tell you that there are 2,000 miles between the 69th mile and the 70th mile. Does that make sense? No, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> Someone said yes. It doesn't, make sense if, it doesn't make sense if I was to do that to you, and it doesn't make sense in Bible prophecy. The 70th week immediately followed the 69th week. So now let's finish the prophecy. Because some people do think that the Antichrist is mentioned in this very last verse. Let's read it. Gabriel says that Messiah would be cut off, and then this happens. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Now let me ask you, after Jesus dies, what was left desolate? The sanctuary, right? Remember, Matthew 23, Jesus says, Behold, your house is left to you what? And who did that? It was the Romans in A.D. 70. So what you have in Daniel 9 is a parallel structure. It gives the same idea twice, which is a pattern you find all through the Bible. First, it tells us the Messiah is cut off, and then it says a prince would come to destroy the temple. That's the crucifixion and the destruction of the temple. Okay, Messiah cut off, then a prince comes, uh, destroys the temple. And then... It says Messiah would bring it into sacrifices, the sacrificial system in the middle of the week, and then someone would come and destroy the temple. So it's saying the same thing twice. Jesus is crucified, and then the Romans destroy the temple. Is that clear, everyone? And all of this makes perfect sense because the whole point of this prophecy is to show Daniel that time is running out for his people. 
You see, there's no need to chop up this prophecy and move it all over the place. It makes perfect sense if you read it in context. So let's look at, again, the whole picture really quick. You've got 70 weeks for Daniel's people, and we know that ends in 34 A.D. You've got 69 weeks until Messiah the Prince, and Jesus is baptized right on time in 27 A.D. It says that Messiah brings an end to the sacrifices in the middle of the week. He's cut off in 31 A.D. That's when he's crucified right on schedule. Isn't it breathtaking, friends, to see this prophecy? And Gabriel says this prophecy, this 70 weeks, is lifted out of those 2,300 days. He just solved the puzzle. All right? He just solved the puzzle. So the 2,300 years, if you go 2,300 years from 457 B.C., and if you remember to add the 1 because you're crossing that B.C.A.D. line, where do you end up, friends? You end up at the year 1844, after the Dark Ages. Do you realize what this means? The spring festivals pointed us to the earthly ministry of Jesus. And after a long break, the fall festivals, the ancient fall festivals of the, Israel, the children of Israel, point us to the end of time. Point us to the end of time. After 2,300 days, the sanctuary will be cleansed. It's not the second coming of Christ, but it is the beginning of the time of the end. It's the heavenly day of atonement. The heavenly hour of judgment. That means that the books are open. The scene from Daniel 7 is already taking place. Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days sat at, did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from, from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. At some point before Jesus comes, the judgment begins. And when the judgment is over, Jesus receives a kingdom. That's the very next event in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7, 7 verse 13 it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. The moment is coming when the stone will smash the statue and the kingdoms of men will pass away forever. The moment is coming when Jesus will establish His kingdom, the one that lasts forever, and He does it the moment the judgment is finished. Do you realize what this means? We are almost there. We are almost there. The history of this planet is almost wrapped up. The judgment hour is underway, and when it's finished, history is over. And when Jesus comes, decisions are made. Revelation chapter 22, verse 12. And behold, I come, how? I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give to every man as his work shall be. Let me ask you, friends, how can Jesus give out rewards when he already 
when he comes. It's because the judgment is already finished. It happens just before he returns. And at some moment, the world is going to know that the judgment hour has begun. Revelation 14, 6 and 7. I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come. It's really true. There really is a time of the end, and you know what, friend? You and I are already there. And that means the kingdom of Christ is just around the corner. So let me ask you this. Just about everything the Bible has predicted has happened. We are just a heartbeat away from the second coming. Jesus came the first time right on time, as the Bible said. And there were dozens of prophecies that were designed to let the world know when Jesus would come. The sanctuary has shown us in detail. And now, He's coming again. And it's not going to be wrong about that either. God is not going to let human suffering last forever. He's not going to let this old world last forever. COVID is not going to last forever. Amen. Wars are not going to last forever. Amen. Death is not going to last forever. My question for you tonight as we close is this. Where are you with Jesus? Would you be right if you stood before the judgment tonight? At some point very soon, the books are going to be closed. Jesus is going to come and it's going to be over. There was a young man who sat on the edge of a sidewalk one day. And a pastor who knew him spotted him there on the sidewalk and he, he decided to stop and talk with him. And he said, you know, young man, there's a meeting taking place at the church tonight and I, I really want to see you there. I, I'd really love to see you. Nah, he said, I'm not really wanting to go back to church, preacher. I'm just going to, I don't really feel like it. I'm just going to sit here. Young man, said the pastor, you don't have to wait until you're good and ready to look for God. Why don't you just come to the church tonight? You really need to come. I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. No, thanks, preacher. No, I know. I, I, listen, I, I got plenty of time before I think about church. I got other stuff I got to worry about in my life. I'm, I don't need to think about God right now, preacher. I'll go sometime, but just, just, just not now. Just not now. All right, the pastor said. But I hope you change your mind. I would love to see you there. The minister then went on his way. The next morning, there was a terrible story in the news. A car had gone out of control and struck a young man who was sitting on the edge of a sidewalk. And to the pastor's shock, it was the same young man that he had talked to the day before. Friends, many like this young man feel that they have all the time in the world to make things right with God. But the Lord says, remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. Oh, friend, do not put off preparation. 
Today is the day of salvation. No one knows how much time they have left on this earth. The young man thought he had plenty of time. Did he have time? No. Felix said to the Apostle Paul, Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. The sad thing is that a convenient season never arrived. Friend, don't put off commitment until later. Don't think about convenience. Give yourself to God tonight. How many of you want to say tonight as we close, Lord Jesus, I want you to have my heart. Just raise your hand with me. Lord, I don't want anything to stand between me and you. Just raise your hand right there. God sees your hand. He knows your heart. Remember, he, we confess our sin. He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You can know tonight that you are safe in God's arms. But don't put off that decision. I want to invite you to make that decision. It's the best decision you can ever make. And as we keep studying prophecy, you're going to continue to be able to make more decisions because we need to be ready for Christ's soon return. Amen? He is coming so soon. Father in heaven, Lord, as we have looked at this amazing prophecy, our hearts have been touched by just how powerful Your Word is. Lord, You gave this prophecy to the prophet Daniel hundreds of years before it came to pass. And Jesus came right on time. And Lord, just as surely as You gave us that prophecy, we, cannot, we have now seen that we are living in the close of time, in that Day of Atonement, that Judgment Hour. And Lord, we know that Your coming is the next thing on the prophetic calendar. Lord, we don't, we don't know how much longer we have on this earth. We don't want to put off for another day getting things right with You. So tonight, Lord, You've seen the hands that have been raised. All of us, Lord, we say to You, Lord, we give You our heart. We confess our sins. We give You our lives. Lord, we need You to stand with us, with us in that judgment because we cannot stand alone. But when You stand with us, we have nothing to fear because You cover us with Your blood. And so tonight we claim that promise, Lord, that You are our great High Priest. You're our lawyer and our judge. And You cover us, Father. So tonight we thank You for that wonderful promise. Thank You that we have hope in the judgment, that we have nothing to fear, and that one day soon we're going to be with You forever. Lord, keep us faithful until that day. Bless my friends here tonight. Give them a safe trip home. Bless all that are watching online. Thank You for this amazing prophecy. And bring us back again tomorrow night, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.